This is Car Expert. The Model 3 broke the Camry's 26-year uninterrupted spot at the top of Australia's mid-size sedan charts. Wow. It's now Australia's top-selling sedan. It may not necessarily be the new class leader as perhaps Nissan might want it to be, but I think that the new Qashqai is a really good, solid um, alternative to what's on the market right now. Hello, Mike Costello. Hello, Mandy Turner. Happy New Year. Good to see you again. You too. Happy New Year to you, uh, James Wong. Hello. Well, Happy New Year. Yes, I nearly said welcome to you, but you're welcoming me. (laughs) You can welcome me if you like. That would be Um, just weird. I'm two for two for awkward entries into the podcast now in the last two episodes. (laughs) I did put that blooper at the end of, I think, the last episode, which was quite funny. Um, uh, Mocha, you drive an interesting car over the uh, the holiday break. How was your time with the Outlander Fev? Yeah, so one of the things we tend to do over our Christmas break is we all get hold of a car for a couple of weeks and really get to live with it and scratch beneath the surface. And I'm a little bit of a skeptic for plug-in hybrids, but um, thought, you know, I'll grab an Outlander plug-in hybrid and live with it for a couple of weeks and see if I start to see things in it that perhaps I didn't previously. And to a degree, I was quite impressed, actually. I did about a 1,000 Ks overall. Um, I got really into the habit of charging it every single night. I'm lucky that I own a house in the suburbs with a with a, a power plug um, outside, so it's quite easy for me just to plug it in I don't have to worry about street parking or anything like that I found I was getting 70 kilometers of real world electric only range even on highway driving particularly on one um, stint out to the family farm which is more than most plug-in hybrids can claim and um, definitely got used to sort of I guess catering my lifestyle to suit the vehicle which is the real driving purpose of that dual motor electric all-wheel drive plug-in hybrid SUV. Um, That being said, over the 1,000 Ks that I did in it over the break, I was still averaging about 4.4 litres every 100, um, despite pretty uh, rigorous charging, which isn't all that much better than, a say, a RAV4 hybrid that doesn't have the plug-in benefit. Um, And that, of course, is because when the battery is depleted in the Outlander Fev, it runs as a mild hybrid that weighs a lot more um, and therefore the efficiency isn't quite as good. So, again, uh, it's still very much a car that's contingent on, on charging it regularly and driving it in a way that suits the vehicle. But... Certainly think that as far as plugins go, Mitsubishi is definitely showing its experience, and I think it's a much more convincing package than a lot of others of its type. Did uh, your your claimed seventy k range is that close to what Mitsubishi claimed? Close-ish. So Mitsubishi claims 84 Ks, but that is on the NEDC testing cycle, which is notoriously uh, simple. And 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 sorry, I say simple, but what I really mean is is very um, hard to match in the real world unless you're driving incredibly cautiously. Um, so 70, I thought was a pretty good bet. Uh, I could probably stretch it out to 75 or 80 if I was using a bit more brake regeneration. So. Not bad, pretty honest, and, and certainly closer to the claim that a lot of other vehicles have gotten in my time. I mean, 70 is, is plenty when, when you're thinking about totally. your commute to and from the city. That's it's- exactly it. I could easily imagine you owning this car and just never fueling it up for your average yeah. commute. You could drive to work every single day on pure electric power. If you've got panels on your roof, all the better. Um, but either way, it's going to be a heck of a lot cheaper. That being said, it is still about 16 and a half grand more than the petrol equivalent. 
in exceed tourer guys. So you're never actually going to pay back that difference it, it, unless you unless you drove to the moon every day. You're not going to pay back the difference <laughs> yeah. because it's 16 and a half grand or as a normal hybrid's only sort of two and a half or three grand more than a petrol. So it still doesn't stack up financially, but it does offer a lot more punch. It's a much more um, powerful and performance-oriented drivetrain with a lot more tricks in its bag. So I don't think it's a pure, you know, price calculator back of the envelope exercise. It's actually a good car in its own right. And yeah, I was, I was pleasantly surprised how much I got along with it, I have to say. And I think Paul in his video said something very similar when he tested it last year. He went into it a bit sceptical but came away pretty impressed and I think it's the same for me. Interesting. How did you find the um, the drive to the farm in it? Yeah, it was good. I mean, I, it was a pretty hot, Chrissy day with the AC pumping and, you know, loaded up with gear and bags and people and all that sort of stuff. So I was definitely putting it through its paces, but it doesn't ride very well. Huge wheels, slow profile tyres. It's been a bugbear that a lot of us have had with that car. It's got a very lumpy ride over, you know, pretty much all roads, to be honest with you, which definitely mm. takes away from it. But the drivetrain is excellent and I'd probably be doing a wheel swap or buying a base model with uh, chubbier tyres. But the drivetrain, not having to worry about, shit, where am I going to charge? You know, it's harder to charge out in the countryside than it is in the city. And if you've got a short-range EV, sometimes doing big big trips out into regional areas can be tough. So having that petrol generator back up was, was really excellent. Yeah, very nice. Do we expect a review from you with this or was it just a bit of spending nah, very time? very soon, it? very soon. I've got to send for my supper, so it'll definitely be a review very shortly. <laughs> Excellent. Um, now, for anyone who's uh, based in Melbourne, Joe, there's a couple of really cool car shows uh, that we probably should give a bit of a plug for. Yes, so um, the Highball Cars and Coffee is coming up this weekend um, on Sunday morning from 8 a.m. So um, Highball is a really cool car meet that um, generally does quarterly events and there's quite a really there's quite a really cool mix of, of vehicles that seem to attend these i think we've um, plugged them before on the podcast but you know you get everything from mclaren centers to like classic fiat 500s and a baths and old alfa romeos and stuff and there's Mitsubishi Magnus. yeah and like you know old there's lots of old japanese stuff there's a lot of old italian stuff but then there's a lot of the new things as well and um it's it's always a really uh cool time to be there and to see what's happening so that's happening this coming Sunday. Um, so get down to um, Bosch in Clayton if you're around. Um, also, we have a, um, a Drive Against Depression event coming up soon. So I'm the charity ambassador alongside Chelsea Angelo, who is a, a race car driver and a, and a friend of mine. And um, we have our first drive for the year coming up. Uh, I think it's the 29th of January. So it's the last Sunday of the year where we're driving from uh, Geelong down to the Great Ocean Road. But while that doesn't sound like a very long drive, there's obviously a lot of cool roads around there. So we'll be taking the, the scenic route. Um, so there is a um, like a sign up or registration page up. I'm not sure if we've met capacity yet, but um, definitely something to get down to if you are around. Basically, for those who don't aren't familiar with the charity, it's all about um, getting people together and normalizing conversations conversations around mental health through a shared love of motoring so you know you come down you meet people you can chat about things and just enjoy the day or you know if you're if you're with a friend and you're, you have this time in the car together you can perhaps open up about something that's bothering you that's sort of the the whole premise behind it and something that I've been supporting for a really long time and, and various members of the team have as well so if you're around um, head to driveagainstdepression.com.au and there's some some more information there and a link to register if you're if you, if you have the time. Yeah, I can say firsthand, if you're a car person uh, who's got some mental health demons that you're going through, 
it's so cathartic to head out somewhere with a bunch of people with similar issues to you just to talk about a shared passion in cars. It's not just about driving fast, but it's about the whole community around it. It's a wonderful, wonderful charity and um, the days are always worth doing. So if you're listening to this and you reckon it sounds like your cup of tea, I can assure you it is. So get down there. We'll get stuck into this week's car news and we'll throw it to you first, J-Wo. Uh, BYD's Yang Wang reveals a very... <laughs> Interesting looking supercar. Yes, interesting uh, name. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so, yeah, I don't necessarily cover news as much as I used to um, <laughs> in my previous life, but the the, the recent um, motor show in China brought out quite a few new cars and um, this new Yangwang sub-brand from BYDs, I, I'm assuming is like their premium, like high-end luxury arm because they've revealed a pair of cars that are very opposite ends of the spectrum, but also very, very expensive. Um, so the U9 is an electric supercar that looks like something out of a Hot Wheels fantasy or I don't know, you know how like some of those old PlayStation and Nintendo games where you had cars that weren't licensed? Yes. (laughs) Very much like that. So it's revealed in a bright yellow and it's, you know, got gullwing doors and C-shaped LED headlights. It's got a very cool price tag of 1 million yen, yen, I think. One, one. I can't one. Yes, <laughs> currencies, uh, currency names evade me. Um, but yes, one million one, which equates to about two hundred and fifteen thousand Australian dollars. Um, it has a very manic zero to one hundred claim of two seconds, um, and the combined power output is around 820 kilowatts from its quad motor electric drive system. Um, there's not a huge amount of detail on it because I assume that they've just revealed it and, you know, in typical Chinese fashion, there'll sort of like be like a drip feed of things. Um, but think of this as sort of like a, a Lotus Avia competitor. Um, they've also revealed a, a, a big luxury electric off-roader called the U8, um, which is something crossed between like a Land Rover Defender and a G-Wagon and an EV. Um, Moko, I think you probably are really well placed to talk about these mm. given you've covered this brand so much. What's what's so cool about them other than how wild they look? <laughs> yeah, so BYD, the part Warren Buffett-owned Chinese uh, super brand that has just eclipsed uh, 3 million global sales and is starting to take over the world. I mean, it's launched as Atto 3, sub $50,000 EV in Australia and is already the number two EV brand in the country behind Tesla after only being on sale for a few months. So it's an incredible start for BYD. And yeah, in China, Yang Wang, unfortunate name, I think doesn't translate quite so well into English, but the U8, as you say, is definitely BYD saying to the world, hey, we're not just making cheap econo boxes. We're actually trying to be a full-fledged automotive superpower and this is how we do it. Um, I reckon there's a bit of Nissan Patrol Y62 in the front Mm. of this U8, especially with its light sequence. But then again, it's definitely going more for the upcoming electric G-Wagon, Mercedes and electric Land Rover Defender market, the sort of ultra high-end electric uh, 4x4. It's got a quad motor system just like that supercar you just talked about, so a motor at each wheel. The whole thing's IP68 sealed, so it can apparently float for a limited amount of time, although I really want to see that put to the test. Um, 1,100 horsepower system output. That's more than 800 kilowatts. So even this giant, more than five-meter-long brick on wheels can do the 100, uh, zero to 100 time in about three seconds. It can also use those four motors in really clever ways. So it can do tank turns, um, 360-degree arcs on the spot, 
So it doesn't need to have a turning radius per se because it can just use its motors to cleverly crab walk or, or tank turn or do all those things that we're seeing from the new electric G-Wagons. BYD's in-house blade batteries are obviously going to feature probably using the LFP chemistry. And again, that price tag is going to be about that 1 million yuan or $200,000 mark. And it's going to be a really interesting litmus test to see can these Chinese brands genuinely push up market like they want to? We know people are willing to buy their more affordable fare, but now that these brands are at the point where they actually want to be taken seriously as more than that, are people in China and overseas, possibly in Australia, going to be willing to shell out European luxury brand money for a Chinese-made luxury EV? Well, when you look at the actual tech and specs and what it has to offer, it certainly doesn't look inferior. So it's going to be really interesting to see. And there were a lot of comments on this story. And surprisingly enough, most of them were very positive. I think BYT is being rapidly accepted um, by the average punter. And I mean, the way the Chinese market moves, it is just, it is so quick. You cannot keep up with it. And this is a great example of that. Hmm. What are your thoughts on its uh, its design, <laughs> Jaywo? Uh, it's it's like um, Moko said. It's definitely a mishmash of different things. There's a bit of patrol. There's a bit of G wagon. Yeah. There's a bit of defender. I even thought that it looks a little bit like the old Pajeros did um, from some angles. Um, I think it looks really cool. And 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 Mike poses a really interesting question. Yeah, like you know, with the Chinese market, um, take the exports out of the equation. But there's t- long been quite a, a trend, or you know, a, a taste for export. Um, or sorry, import um, products in China. When you make it big, you buy, you know, a, a brand from from Europe or something like that. And so the thought of um, China's wealthy spending a lot of money on local products seems a little bit um, interesting because it's not typically something that uh, the, the their buying public does. But I guess if um, if the if there's a the, the brands are making it clear there's there's a market for it, and I, I would think, given how um, Australia loves to be uh, is a market of early adopters and people love to have the biggest, most powerful thing on the road, that if something like this was to make it to Australia, there'd definitely be some people that would be lining up for it. I'd say, even with that massive price tag. Yeah, true. Well, we're going to stick with uh, the weird and wonderful names, uh, Moco. Sony and Honda have teamed up and called themselves. Afila, A-F-E-E-L-A, uh, which is, again, I'm, I'm not really sure what they're going for with that name. But, no. um, <laughs> we've known that Honda and Sony were doing a joint venture for quite some time now. They talked about it at length last year, two of Japan's most famous brands, both of which, you know, perhaps the luster has come off them a bit in the last few years. You know, in the 90s, Honda and Sony were probably two of the world's preeminent mm. technology and automotive brands. But just lately, you know, they've had their thunder stolen somewhat. So this really strikes me as a Japanese you know, I guess, riposte to the the global forces that have taken supremacy away from these brands recently. And it used the enormous CES annual tech show in Vegas at the start of this year to to really give some explaining as to what it plans to do here. So the first Afila EV from Sony Honda Mobility Incorporated, as the company is called, um, is going to be a sleek looking sedan, a bit like an Ionic 6 Hyundai or a Tesla Model 3 with a starting production time of 2025 mooted. And the concept they showed us was a much more advanced version of a previous Sony concept called the Vision S. And the companies have really, I guess, minimalized the design language and made it a much more clean and elegant look. Very similar, actually, to the Hyundai Ionic 6. So it's got very aerodynamically optimized design, flush hidden door handles, very few shut lines, a very simple minimalist design approach and aesthetic. So really going down that sort of Tesla Hyundai route with the way that it looks. 
Um, and the companies are really saying that, you know, Honda's going to be responsible for the hardware and making the vehicles. Sony's going to bring to its table its expertise in all things technology. So it's going to be a highly connected software-driven vehicle with over the air and, and all of these new things that we're seeing taking over the industry, a very software-based experience. Um, 4.9 metres long, so about in between a Model 3 and a Model S from Tesla in terms of size and dimensions. We know it's going to have five seats and dual motor all-wheel drive, but we don't know a heck of a lot more beyond that at the moment. Um, inside, nothing but screens, as you could probably imagine, in a horizontal rather than portrait-oriented format with uh, camera-based um, uh, side mirrors, you know, with uh, in, in inverted paragraphs there, so, so side mirrors. Um, augmented reality navigation, 5G-based OTA compatibility, level three automated driving is the plan. So all of those technological uh, things are being signed off. Um, the prototype had 45 cameras and sensors um, and uses Qualcomm technology Snapdragon digital chassis, which all means basically that's going to be about the most high-tech vehicle that money can buy at the time it launches. Um, headquartered in Tokyo, but being made in the United States. And I think when people say that Honda has fallen behind a little bit, this is a really clever way that the company can get its mojo back and say that, you know what, I think it's a great story, teaming up with Sony, two brands that have had better days trying to reinvent themselves. And I've got to say, I'm pretty impressed with it. Not sure about the name, but the vehicle itself, go check it out at carexpert.com.au. Look it up. Maybe reach out to us in the comments and tell us what you think. But but I reckon mm-hmm. it um, it looks the goods. What do you guys think? It definitely looks cool. I personally think that the Vision S was perhaps a more attractive vehicle. But mm-hmm. the um, this new thing... I don't know. It's got it's got yeah, a little bit of the Hyundai. It's got a little bit of Porsche Taycan about it, um, and obviously there's a lot of big um, claims being thrown out there. But you know, it's it's something that we've been hearing about for a really long time, particularly on the Sony side of things. So I think it'll be, you know, if if, if they're starting sales in 2026, it's a little while to wait. So. We can't really say much other than how it looks on paper, right? So, but yeah, I guess it's exciting. And like Moko said, two companies that have, um, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s were at the top of their game and sort of fallen off a little bit. So it could be a really great um, story for both brands and for, for for Japan as a whole. We're seeing some of the Japanese brands really turn things around lately. So um, yeah, I guess the more the merrier. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, now we're going to move to uh, cars that we typically see on our roads at the moment now. Uh, J-Wo, finally Toyota have got on the uh, bandwagon of mean utes and there's a, a wild Hilux coming. Well, yeah, wild's probably a bit of a stretch, but yeah, um, <laughs> Toyota's revealed the GR Sport, um, at least the Australian version, not the not to be confused with the the sticker pack that was offered in other markets. So um, apparently the Toyota Australia team um, led the development of this car in, in collaboration with a couple of other uh, regional head offices and have developed something that is probably a lot bit closer to something of a Ranger Raptor rival than we've seen previously. So it's got like the wide body and um, suspension lifts and things like that that we saw in the updated Rogue that came out recently and this car will come out later this year with a little bit more um, grunt and a more aggressive look to go with the GR Sport name. So um, it's got a 10% 
power and torque lift to 165 kilowatts and 550 newton meters, which isn't quite Ranger Raptor V6 twin turbo numbers, but it's definitely a step up on what the the, the normal Hilux is, even if it's a nominal amount. And then in terms of how it looks, um, it's got a more distinctive grille, a, a unique bumper, and obviously that wide body setup and the, the hero color that's been shown in the press images is a nice bright red, which, which looks quite good. Um, there's ventilated rear disc brakes, uh, sportier feel um, through tuning to the steering and the throttle response and the transmission. Um, and there's a slew of GR Sport appointments right down to a different steering wheel with a, a 12 o'clock marker, new seats um, with Alcantara trim, alloy pedals, um, black painted wheels with red brake calipers and all that kind of stuff. So we don't, other than what they've said on paper, it seems a bit like a, a, a beefed up um, rogue from what they've said there hasn't there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of um, upgrades over what that um, that variant offers but I guess this will see out the current generation Hilux um, as the flagship at least in Australia until we see the next one which is probably due in maybe two or three years time um, so yeah I'd like to know what you guys think because obviously Toyota the Hilux was Australia's top selling vehicle and um, even beat out the Ranger for 4 by 4 leadership this year um, probably based on the fact that the Ranger launched and had a bit of a gap between generations but do you guys think that this car despite being fairly down on performance compared to the new Ranger Raptor whether this could actually really bump Toyota sales for the, the foreseeable future. I saw a comment that I really liked, which was uh, making a reference to, I don't remember what the reference was, but probably The Simpsons, but saying, you know, you're a kid and you ask your mum for a Big Mac and she says, no, we've got Big Macs at home. And it's just like tip top bread with a sausage in it. And it's kind of <laughs> like that, like the Raptor is the Big Mac and the, and the Hilux yeah. is the sort of home brand equivalent because um, it just doesn't do what the Raptor does, right? It doesn't have a, a crazy force-fed petrol engine. It doesn't have, you know, the, the full wholesale makeover that that performance vehicle has had. And it's probably going to cost nearly as much when you have a look at the price of the Rogue and then assume this is going to be more expensive. But on the other hand, I think it looks fantastic with its flared arches, the wheels, some of those GR design touches, and it does bring some performance improvements. And at the end of the day, it's a Hilux. It's going to sell. People love Hiluxes, yeah. and it's probably not up with the very best of the competition, but if people want hardcore utes, it would be remiss of Toyota not to at least try to do something. And it can't exactly put a new engine in a car that's only got two years left to run, as Wongi said. So this is probably the best we could have hoped for, in all honesty. Um, and maybe the next gen will do something a bit more full on. But for what it is and, and in the context in which it exists, I think it's a reasonable job. Um, although I'd probably still be opting for, at that price point, even just a, a Ranger Wildtrak with a V6 diesel would probably be more impressive to me. But, <laughs> hey, some people love their Hiluxes. Now, Moko, GWM have got a new ute. Yeah, well, we've just been speaking about the most popular ute in sale, and now we'll talk about a Challenger ute. So GWM, formerly known as Great War Motor, um, unsurprising rebrand there, um, already sells the GWM ute. Canon in Australia to, to quite some success, but in China it's revealed what it's calling the Shanghai Canon, not the Shanghai, but the Shanghai Canon. Now, this vehicle is almost certain to come to Australia, uh, probably this year. Don't know if it'll be called Shanghai Canon. It might take on a different name for this market. In fact, I would venture to guess it probably will, but it's quite exciting because it uses the choice of either a V6 petrol 
uh, with twin turbos, so real performance um, winner there, or a ramped up 2.4 litre diesel option that offers more power and torque than the familiar 2 litre we've seen in the GWM Ute Cannon. It's also got a much more upmarket, sophisticated interior and a far more American-style premium design. It's not quite as garish and gauche as the GWM Ute, but it's a much more resolved look, if you ask me. Um, and when you consider that, you know, GWM is about to launch the tank hybrid 4x4 SUV, a big boxy sort of off-roader, it's really interesting to see just how that brand is starting to push up market. So a few tech specs, the 2.4 litre diesel uses a 48 volt mild hybrid system, um, 135 kilowatts and 480 newton metres. So still not up there with the absolute best in the business, but definitely closer to them. More torque than a D-Max as well, which is worth noting. And then a three-litre twin-turbo V6 petrol, again with 48-volt battery, makes 260 kilowatts and 500 newton metres. Um, both use a nine-speed automatic and a Borg Warner on-demand all-wheel drive system with locking diffs front and rear. So it's a pretty sophisticated bit of kit. And there are also hybrid, plug-in hybrid and hydrogen fuel cell versions of this car in the works for China and probably for Australia at some point, given how rapidly these Chinese brands evolve. Um, a 3.3-tonne towing capacity, which is about 300 kilos more than the existing GWM Ute that it'll sell alongside. Um, more car-like suspension, so a solid axle at the rear, but it's coil-sprung rather than leaf-sprung. And dimensionally, it's actually bigger than a Ford Ranger as well. Plus, it has some interesting features, including a split tailgate at the rear that's forklift friendly, um, 220 volt power points inside and in the tub, all the requisite safety gear, massive touchscreen displays and sunroof inside. It actually looks a bit like a luxury SUV on the inside. And in China, the pricing kicks off below 50 grand Australian converted, which gives you a rough idea of what we'd be looking at when it gets here to Australia. Um, I think this car could be a bit of a game changer for GWM. It's going to continue to sell its ute Canon at the bottom end to the more sort of cheap and cheerful Ute buyers that might be cross-shopping against a used Hilux or a used Ranger or maybe a base Triton. And then this one will come in over the top as sort of its more premium proposition. And I think people are showing increasingly now that they're willing to give these new brands a chance, especially if the warranty is right. And competition, as I always say, is always a good thing. So I'm not expecting this thing to take over from the Ranger as Australia's sort of preeminent dual cab 4x4. But it looks like a heck of a step up for that brand, and I personally can't wait to see it here. And while it hasn't been uniformly confirmed, I'd be stunned and amazed if we didn't see it down here during 2023 at some point. Um, have you guys had a chance to have a bit of a sticky beak at this thing? And if so, what do you reckon? Um, I was just looking at the photos. It actually looks quite close to the um, concept, the X-Cannon mm. concept. Very it's close. It's really tough, isn't it? Like it's a very yeah. resolved thing. Very nice. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I think the same. It's um, it's it's got a really cool look. It's sort of a mix again of a few different things. It kind of looks a bit like the Toyota Tundra at the front. Um, the but it's got a, like a nice, like imposing look. It doesn't look. I think the 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 normal um Canon Ute is a little bit curvy and a little bit too sleek almost to look – some people might not find it as masculine and not to be sexist or anything, but I feel like utes look better when they look tough um, and they'll appeal to more people. This one sort of has a really imposing look about it and that cabin is really cool as mm. well. It's something that you don't really see. Um, it definitely looks as luxurious, if not more so, than even something like a Ranger or even the new Amarok. So I guess, you know, I, I see a lot of the the normal utes, GWM utes around in Melbourne, and I imagine when that co this comes here that we'll probably start to see more of those. Like Mike said, um, 
Australian buyers are increasingly keen to try out these new brands and give them a crack and they seem to be fairly happy with them because they seem there's a lot on the road so word of mouth gets around and um, you know if it's priced and spec well like if you can get one of these for the price of a wild track but it's a bigger car with you know really techy powered drivetrains and a luxurious cabin like you know I can't see why it can't be successful yeah and our last story, I might throw to you, uh, Moko. It's probably about time Sangyong has changed its name. <laughs> Sangyong, the Battler <laughs> brand, right? The brand that continues to churn out really good cars. The, hmm. the Musso is a great budget ute. The Corando is an underrated medium SUV. The Rexton is a Isuzu MUX style body on frame 4x4. And it's a really, really, uh, uh, it's a Battler brand that has almost no money and is perpetually broke, but still manages to churn out great cars. For those who don't know the history of Sangyong, it's Korea's oldest car brand and the sort of number three Korean brand behind Hyundai and and Kia, obviously, in the pecking order. Now, it recently um, was bought by a Korean conglomerate called KG, um, which is great news because the company had been essentially dropped by its previous owner, Mahindra, and was at risk of completely tumbling over. And that would have had massive effects on globally the brand, including in Australia where it has a factory subsidiary and has enjoyed some sales success. But KG, has, uh, which is a steel company among many other things, has reinvented the brand pumped a ton of money into it and committed to its electric-focused and ute-focused future and has also said that it's going to axe the Sangyong Motor name and rename it KG Mobility. So perhaps at some point in the next few years, you'll be driving around in your KG Mobility Musso and not your Sangyong Musso. Um, and Sangyong as a brand, I think it's pretty clear. There's a fair bit of baggage attached to that. There's a quote here from uh, the head of the newly uh, formed KG Mobility, who said that we've decided to go for a new name to fully utilize the strength of Sangyong Motor. Under the name of Sangyong, the company has a fandom, but also has a painful image. The new cars will come out as KG, but its car making history will never change and uh, have the same conditions. So that's really interesting. There was a bit of a consensus, apparently, according to some some surveys that it did, that people thought Sangyong was a Chinese brand. They didn't really know anything about it. They, they sort of thought the name stunk, basically, and, and it put them off buying the car. And, and I think this is a, a wise move. It's, it's not as interesting a name, but it's probably a more palatable one to a lot of people. And you know what? If this means solidity and stability for, for the brand moving forward, I don't care what they call it. I've always wanted this brand to have the money and resources that it requires to actually live up to the promise that it shows. And I really get a good feeling about this latest reinvention, about the 30th reinvention for Sanyong slash KG in recent times. But um, a good news story. And funnily enough, I think there's a lot of people that agree with me because this was one of the most read stories on the site last week. I was having a look at the traffic and analytics before and this story did incredibly well. So I think there's a heck of a lot of support out there for the brand and they really want to see it flourish and, and hopefully this is the beginning of that. Ah, do you agree with Moko and uh, all the commenters, Joe? Uh, I don't know if, if I personally agree. I, I sort of like having... Um, you know, a bit of history behind the name and that kind of thing. So I always respected that, you know, Sangyong, even if it has a, a troubled past or even a troubled present um, and some of their old products weren't necessarily um, glowingly um, reviewed that, you know, their current stuff is is really good and they've sort of had a bit of a renaissance of late and um, I 
you know, you can sort of see where the brand's been and the journey and the, the fact that they've kept their name and their badge for a really long time. I don't also don't think that KG Mobility is a particularly creative or cool name. And so the idea of someone being mm. called the KG this, um, I don't know, but I'm also somebody that doesn't necessarily like change that much. But I think it's great that the company yes. has now has been saved and <laughs> we can stop, you know, waiting until its demise because we thought, it, it, you know, the couple of deals fell through and we thought that we might, might not see them anymore. But um, like Moko said, they make their current crop of product is actually really good. And um, the, it seems like Sangyong is sort of taking the same path as Hyundai and Kia in, in leaving the past in the past and really coming up with some competitive and different product. And hopefully this new um, rebranding will see them continue that trajectory and they've got some really cool stuff in the pipeline so hopefully we, we see that come to fruition and and see it here in australia yeah we certainly do look forward to it if you would like to read more news you can click the news link at carexpert.com.au okay so it is uh, that time of the month to talk about the facts but we're actually not going to talk about december we're going to talk about the year in review which is um i think quite important moko yeah, so you might think that with all the doom and gloom we keep hearing about with lack of chips and ship prices going through the roofs and Ukraine causing wiring harness shortages and bug infestations keeping cars in quarantine and all the other headwinds we keep hearing about might have had a disastrous effect on sales in 2022 in Australia, but not so because new vehicle sales actually grew by 3% last year over 2021, and it was the best sales year since 2018. So not exactly an unprecedented year, but 1.081 million new cars, SUVs, and commercial vehicles sold is nothing to sneeze at, Um, and that was based principally on a December uh, jump of 12.1%, which suggests that we're starting to see greater supply starting to proliferate through the market. Toyota has always finished top of the annual charts, but it recorded its best result in 14 years. And we keep hearing that Toyota has got these massive wait lists. In fact, RAV4 and Camry wait lists are still two years, and that information comes to me direct from the boss of Toyota himself who told it to me yesterday on the phone. So I know that's the latest information. Um, and yet it doesn't seem to matter. Demand is just so high that, that Toyota is still selling at the highest numbers it has uh, since 2008. Mazda took second place, um, slightly down, but still a really solid second result. One thing that was really interesting to me, though, was Kia, which finished in third place, far and away its best result ever, banished Mitsubishi, uh, Ford, and, of course, its sister brand Hyundai uh, into into lower positions on the ladder. And the fact that Kia outsold Hyundai in Australia, I think, is going to cause some very interesting conversations inside that particular conglomerate. Um, some questions might be asked of how exactly that has happened. Um, battery electric vehicles, obviously a massive um, talking point, accounted for 3.1% of all sales last year. And um, they show a lot of signs of spiking in 2023 with a you know, myriad affordable EVs, mostly from China, um, beginning to flood the market. We're hearing mixed things in terms of supply moving forward. Most brands are saying that sort of from the second half of 23, they should start to see about normality resume when it comes to supply pipeline. But obviously, there is still sufficient vehicles kicking around for those sales figures to be higher than they were in recent years. So guys, as always, I've I've done a piece that breaks it down by brand, by model, and, and all sorts of other categories and trends. Are there things in particular you want to know? Ask me some questions. I'm keen to hear how did uh, Tesla fare? How did Tesla fare? That's a really interesting question. So Tesla finished inside the top 20, 19,594 sales, so just under 20,000 sales, about 
60% of all EVs sold in Australia last year was a Tesla, uh, were Teslas. So, so obviously that company continues to dominate not just people's minds when it comes to EVs, but also in terms of sales. We did see you know, upstarts like Polestar and Cooper and BYD start to do really, really well towards the end of the year. So there's every chance that Tesla's dominance may not continue in 2023 to quite the same extent. But there's no doubt in 2022, I mean, it outsold Audi, it outsold Honda, it outsold Volvo, and in fact, it outsold them easily as well. So, <laughs> so Tesla is absolutely um, storming up the sales charts there. And you know, it's not quite in the top 10 yet, but... I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the near future we saw it there. And, of course, the Model 3 broke the Camry's 26-year uninterrupted spot at the top of Australia's mid-sized sedan charts. It's now Australia's top-selling sedan. So that's a real win for the Model 3. And the Model Y dominates the luxury medium SUV market and basically banishes everything else into mediocrity on the sales charts. So with two models, that's a pretty damn impressive result, I think. If we do look at the brand charts before, I mentioned that the, the Kia finishing third ahead of Mitsubishi and Hyundai in fifth, Ford in sixth. But just to round out that top 10, we see MG in seventh, so a staggering result there. Almost 50,000 sales for MG, the, the Chinese upstart at the affordable end of the market. The most popular plug-in hybrid in the market was the HS. The ZS EV continues to do great numbers and was supply constrained, but still in the top five selling EVs in the market and pretty stunning result for that company. I think Subaru in eighth, Isuzu Ute in ninth, the Mercedes-Benz squeaking into 10th place just ahead of Volkswagen. Um, and then Nissan, which was the biggest loser in the market last year, down 36% because it just basically had no SUVs that it could sell people because it was between generations. So, so a very interesting breakdown there, I think. What else have you got for me, guys? What about the top 10 nameplates, Moko? Because we've sort of touched on it a little bit with um, Hilux and Ranger at the top. And from there, like what does, what does our top 10 new vehicle list look like? Yeah, so Hilux far and away the top seller and it won both the 4x2 and 4x4 ute segments. Just under 65,000 sales there. Ranger in second with 47,000 sales, so a fair way away. It actually wasn't that close in the end. And the Hilux's sales performance was the highest we've seen from any car in close to 20 years. I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but, you know, it's not – you've got to go back to the days of the Commodore and Falcon to see an individual nameplate selling in the sort of numbers that the Hilux is these days. And the market's a lot more fragmented now, so it's probably more impressive. Third place was the Toyota RAV4, which, again, those two-year wait lists remain a factor, but it was still number three with just under 35,000 sales. Fourth was the Mitsubishi Triton, so three utes in the top four. Mazda CX-5, Toyota Corolla, Isuzu D-Max, MG ZS, Hyundai i30, and Toyota Prado rounding out the top ten. So all very familiar nameplates. Not a ton of surprises there. Um and obviously dominated by mid-sized SUVs and utes. Mm. Well, that was going to be my next question. Uh, we need to probably break down the, the segments, assuming SUVs are on top again. Yeah, they are. So SUVs were 53% of the market, whereas light commercials are 24% and passenger cars 19%. And if you go back 10 or 15 years, passenger cars, I mean, the Mazda 3 was the top-selling vehicle in the country only 10 or so years ago. So <laughs> we've seen a huge change in customer behaviours, based on all manner of external factors. Um, If we break them down a little bit in in a little bit more of a granular way, we see that medium SUVs alone were 20% of the market, 4x4 utes were 18% of the market. So those two vehicle segments alone accounted for almost 40% of the, the total car park. 
if you add small SUVs and large SUVs and small cars, just five segments out of a much longer list of segments, that's about 70% of the total market there. So there's really only five vehicle types that people buy at massive scale. Another really interesting one was fuel type. And I have to thank Albors here who made some fantastic infographics. So, so head over to Car Expert's VFACTS story. Uh, that's V and then facts and check it out. There's some great um, animated infographics that you can follow and you can watch the sales figures change in real time over the course of the year. And I'm watching it as I speak, looking at fuel type. So last year, 551,000 cars were petrol, 361,000 were diesel, 82,000 were hybrid, 33,400 were electric. And uh, plug-in hybrids really languishing on just under 6,000 sales and obviously hydrogen fuel cell an almost irrelevant number. Um, but it's really interesting to see that EVs and hybrids are basically leaving plug-in hybrids well behind. And hybrids on the back of Toyota had their absolute record haul. And really interesting figure I saw was if you took Toyota hybrid and made it a separate brand, it would be number six in market. So petrol electric vehicles continue to do really, really well. Electric vehicles continue to grow at an astonishing pace. Plug-in hybrids, a lot of people probably thought that maybe it was the ideal technology for Australia, the bridging technology, um, but it just hasn't resonated as yet. Maybe 2023 will be different, but it just hasn't as yet. And then if we look at a few other interesting factoids, we see country of origin. Uh, Japan was the biggest source of cars. About a third of all vehicles sold in Australia last year came from Japan. Thailand was just behind that with 250,000-odd sales. Korea, 160,000 uh, vehicles were sourced from there for the Australian market last year. And number four uh, in terms of trading partners was China, 123,000 vehicles sold last year. So more than 10% of all the cars sold in Australia last year made in China. Ten years ago, that figure was about zero. So there's been an enormous growth from there. And Germany, I mean, the number of cars we sourced from Germany was one third the number of cars we sourced from China. So a huge <laughs> change there as well. Um, a couple of other small little factoids. By buyer type, more than half the cars sold last year, 580,000 were private buyers. So just everyday, you know, mums and dads and normal people buying cars. Business fleet sales actually declined last year, uh, contrary to the overall market, to about a third of the total market. And then rental fleets, um, which grew by 6%, and government fleets, which were slightly down, they're a lot smaller part of the market. But it's great to see that it's the private market that's driving this and not so much the fleet market. Um, and then in terms of by region, New South Wales was the dominant player uh, 338,000 sales. So almost again, a third of all cars sold in the country were in New South Wales. Victoria, 290,000, up 5%. And Queensland, 235,000, up 2.5%. The only region in Australia that was down last year actually was WA, and that was only by 0.2%. So it's not like we were seeing two or three states dominating and the rest sort of falling over. It was consistent growth across the country, and even WA, the sole outlier, down by 0.2%. It's basically you know, staying even really. So it was a pretty consistent mm. year of growth, I thought. So overall, I think it was a pretty good news story, um, despite some ongoing issues that are continuing to cause havoc in the supply chain and causing wait lists and all sorts of headaches. We're starting to see price normality return to some degree as well, obviously, in the used market and the used market. And I think 2023 will build on what we saw in 2022. Well, you can uh, head to Car Expert and read the year in review and also uh, the December VFAX as well. Well, for the uh, 2023 Car Expert podcast, the first episode for this year, we're going to uh, talk about a, actually a, a car that everyone wants to know about, j the Nissan Qashqai. Tell us all about it. How was your time with it? 
The Nissan Qashqai, at least this new generation or third generation one, has been a really long time coming. Um, Nissan has basically not been able to sell any all year because the, the car's been delayed several times. They've had a, a shipment in quarantine due to some sort of bug infestation. So I don't know what they're putting on the British ships at the moment, but you know they're bug infested and having trouble getting into customers. So the, the launch got delayed about three times, and the car's actually been on sale in in UK and in the UK and Europe for over a year now. Hmm. So um, we've been able to sort of get a preview from international outlets, and and now we've finally been able to drive them. And I have to say, especially given how much time I spent with the previous one, and in its twice is it wasn't so inspiring or that great by class standards. The new one is a is a welcome turn to fo- return to form for Nissan. Um, it's perhaps not quite as standard as I as I thought it might have been, but it definitely makes a really good case for itself. And in the current um, state of things, with you know pricing and specifications and tech against the the rest of the market, um, the Qashqai is really well rounded. And while it doesn't necessarily stand out in any particular singular metric, it definitely performs well across the board and um, really makes a case for itself as a, as a, a great small or well, big small SUV for Aussie families and the like. Do we have pricing for it? And, and if we do, how does it stack up to its competitors? Yeah, so pricing was released about July this year. So people have been able to order them for some time now. It kicks off at $33,890 um, plus on road costs for the base ST. And sort of there's a four model range that um, tops out at $47,390 for the flagship TI. Um, later this year, we'll also see the addition of two additional variants powered by the um, e-power powertrain, which I believe, Moko, it's a series hybrid, right? What e-power is called <laughs> or how you would classify that e-power? Is, that is exactly right. So just a quick crash course for those <laughs> listeners out there, a series hybrid is where a petrol engine is a, a generator that creates electricity via the motor to drive the wheels. So it's actually an electric-driven vehicle using a petrol engine as a generator, whereas in a parallel hybrid, the petrol engine is able to directly couple to the wheels and drive the wheels and is assisted by a small electric motor and battery. So they essentially drive in a similar way and work in a similar fashion and use a similarly low amount of petrol, but they do go about it in slightly different ways. And if you talk to Nissan, they'll tell you that it's a radically new technology, but it's not quite that. (laughs) Thank you, Mike Oxford Dictionary Costello. So, yes, we've got two additional variants coming later this year, um, which will likely see the um, if the X-Trail e-power is anything to go by, not that the Qashqai one will have all-wheel drive, but we'll probably see the Qashqai TI e-power um, priced around the 50000 or just over $50,000 mark. So you can sort of see... Where, how it spans from low 30s to about 50 grand. And, and, and because of that, it, it means that the Qashqai has a very wide competitor set, which I've included um, underneath our price list in the review, ranging from everything from the Kia Seltos and Mazda CX-30 right through to something like an Audi Q3 and BMW X1. Because while um, some people may not necessarily draw that link in Australia, over in Europe, um, the Qashqai at the top end particularly is, is right in line there with some of the premium European marks. So, um, even though the range has jumped by about three to eight grand, depending on which variant you're looking at, it's still fairly competitive with the wider segment. Um, we've seen a lot of the, the mainstream brands 
bump their own prices up as well. And so a lot of cars in the cash guys class start in that low to mid $30,000 bracket and then also top out in the mid to high 40s. Um, and the cash guy, you know, to its credit, is one of the larger vehicles in its class. So, you know, it's almost a CX-5 size vehicle and the CX-5 is technically a class up. So you're getting a car that's almost as big as a CX-5 um, for the price of a Kia Seltos. So, you know, it's, it's, it, Nissan likes to really play that Goldilocks or just right size card, which the previous one did as well. Um, so, you know, if space is is luxury, um, then it's got a lot of luxury in that <laughs> in, the, in that case. Um, but in, in, on the topic of luxury, especially once you get to the higher grades, because we spend a lot of time with the, the TI, which is the flagship variant, um, the, in terms of the design and, and the interior execution, it, it's a world away from the last one. You know, the last one was well built, but especially it was already almost dated from the day it came out. And um, th- this new one is just a, a world away. We, we've really praised the the new X Trail and the Pathfinder for feeling quite plush. And I think for the for the small SUV segment in particular, the Qashqai has has catapulted itself to near the top of the class in terms of interior execution. Um, it's got a wonderful um, you know pared back design, but still has you know physical switch gear that feels um, of a really high quality. There's really nice leather at lines touch points. Um, the high spec grades get really nice quality leather on the seats and a beautifully smooth steering wheel. Um, the buttons all operate with a nice solid feel. Um, the ergonomics are still very good and um, the displays are a huge upgrade on the old ones. So now in from the ST Plus and up, you get a, a big 12 and a quarter inch um, central touchscreen, which not only has embedded satellite navigation, but also has wireless Apple CarPlay um, and wired Android Auto. It's um, high res- very high resolution, not necessarily a processing buff. It's a little bit laggy at times, um, but it definitely is a, a big step up on the old one. And just, you know, when you just have that Apple CarPlay home screen or your you know satellite navigation open on it, it definitely looks a lot better than the old one. Um, and then if you step up to the TI, you also get a 12.3 inch digital instrument cluster, which we've seen in um, other vehicles like the Mitsubishi Outlander, Nissan X-Trail and Nissan Pathfinder. Um, again, like the central infotainment, it, just, it looks quite glossy and pretty when it's not doing anything. Occasionally, it can be a little bit laggy, but definitely a step up and um, brings the Qashqai well into the upper echelons of the segment in terms of you know tech and presentation. Um, and it's it's really well featured across the board um, in terms of safety. So uh, the Qashqai recently was awarded a five-star NCAP safety rating based on Euro NCAP testing. And from the base level, you've got a full gamut of safety features like autonomous, autonomous emergency braking that can um, detect pedestrians and cyclists and um, has a junction assist function but there's also reverse AEB with pedestrian detection um, adaptive cruise control blind spot monitoring rear cross traffic alert lane departure warning and lane keep assist and the like so you know it's 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 a really well-rounded offering across the board so whether you go for the ba- one of the base models or one of the high spec grades you're, you're pretty well covered for all the basics and then you know you can add luxuries as you climb up the range Jwo I remember driving the pre or the, the former Qashqai uh, uh, and I thought you know even then it was relatively impressive and this new one looks like it really builds on that with a much more appealing design and a punchier engine and a bunch of other uh, positive attributes but I remember the old one didn't ride very well at, at top spec level with very low profile tires and large wheels and for a car that's designed for urban commuting and carrying small families, ride comfort is paramount. Does this new one continue to struggle in that department offering a brittle, crashy, uncomfortable ride over potholes or does it actually offer a bit more uh, of a cosseting experience 
reflecting in its design. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag there, and that's that's probably the other area where I've really dinged it in the review. Um, the Nissan actually made the decision not to import the TI specification with the the even larger twenty inch wheels that are available in the in the European and UK wow. market. So all the press images had these wonderful, you know, turbine style machined alloy wheels that are that are massive and they look really good on the car. But um, given our experience, like Mike said, with the previous model, the high spec grades rode pretty badly and also had Michelin pilot sport tires, which were very noisy and the cash car was never going to be a sports car. So it never really made a lot of sense. Um, the new one actually makes the move to a multi-link rear suspension setup, whereas the old one had a torsion beam, at least for all the Australian models. And um, at, when we first started driving, I didn't actually realize because it's very, very firmly sprung. It's fairly well damped, but it's got that European tautness to it, which I assume is just a product of where the Qashqai is made because it continues to be produced at Sunderland for the entire world. And, um, you know, over in Europe and the UK, they prefer a bit more of a firm ride and a sportier feel. And um, it's it's still it settles at the at freeway speeds and in town you know you feel you pick up um road imperfections but it's still fairly well damped it doesn't i I actually drove an x-trail to the Qashqai launch i was quite surprised that despite being on the same platform base platform the x-trail was very softly sprung and very comfortable whereas the Qashqai felt like it wanted to give you all of the feedback from all the different road surfaces um the one thing that was bad and it it you know, you know, borderline unacceptable that I experienced on the launch was that we, we sort of went over this this country B road that had a, a very high frequency corrugated um, stretch of, of road and the way that the rear end was unable to settle itself over this particular stretch was quite disappointing. Um, I was with another journalist and we actually like yelled out in frustration because it was so unsettled and and, and really annoying um, to go mm-hmm. over that we were like, what is going on here? Um, so that, that was one thing that really disappointed me on the launch and it's something that I've called out in the review. Even the firm ride for some people is probably going to be a little bit much. But um, the, the Qashqai, fortunately, has made big strides in terms of just overall refinement. The new engine, which is a 1.3-litre turbocharged petrol, um, shared with various models, including the Renault Captur, Renault Arcana, as well as things like the A1, well, the 180 and 200 versions of the Mercedes-Benz A-Class, B-Class, CLA, GLA, GLB. Um, it's, a, it's a much... Uh, more effortless and and quiet engine in operation. Nissan has actually gone and fitted a a new generation of its CVT automatic um, to this engine, unlike um, all of its contemporaries with the same engine that run with dual clutches. Um, And while still not perfect, um, given I recently reviewed the Renault Captur with the same engine but with a seven-speed DCT, I would take the Qashqai CVT any day of the week over the Renault's DCT. Um, It occasionally feels a little bit elastic, but the fact that um, peak torque, um, which is uh, 250 newton meters now instead of 200 from the old engine, um, comes in at 1600 RPM. It just feels a lot more effortless and smooth in operation. And the the new CVT sort of acts a lot more like an automatic. Uh, when we set off in in the Qashqai and started going on some you know high speed roads near the airport, it accelerates and shifts like a normal automatic or even like a a, a DCT that's masquerading as an, as a conventional auto. So we actually had to double check the press the the spec sheet to make sure that we we had it right in our heads um so yeah it's 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 definitely a, a much more resolved driving experience and and more befitting of the price like moko said the old one the old ti was in that for, low 40s mark and um you know with that 
asthmatic petrol engine and a flary CVT wasn't particularly refined. And then on the big wheels, it wasn't particularly comfortable either. So this new one definitely addresses uh, that stuff to an extent. Um, it's meant to be more efficient. Um, Nissan's gone at, um, at length in its press kit detailing all the improvements to aerodynamics and efficiency and things like that. So it's an 11% improvement in official fuel economy. So the 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 claim is 6.1 litres per 100 Ks. I was getting closer to eight um, in the car that we had over Christmas um, as well on the launch um, because once you get in town, um, the it just it's just not as efficient as it as it could be. Um, but when you're on the freeway, um, you it'll dip under five, which is pretty good. And wow. and the Qashqai actually has quite a big fuel tank um, relative to um, the segment. It's like in the fifth, the high fifties or something. So if you if you're on the freeway, you could almost get a thousand k's out of it, which is pretty <laughs> impressive. Um, and there's a there's quite a lot of new um, driver assist technology. So I touched on that earlier, but um, the Qashqai actually now gets Pro Pilot, which is um, Nissan speak for like a lane centering highway assistant. We saw it um, launch on the uh, Qashqai, or not the Qashqai, just with, that's what we're driving today. Um, the X Trail and the Pathfinder this year, but the Qashqai um, debuted or introduced this. Technology a really long time ago. The previous generation one actually offered it elsewhere, but it's the first time we're seeing it on the Qashqai in Australia, and um, that worked really well on the freeway stints that we had, and obviously that that range of um, other assists like um, blind spot monitoring, rear cross traffic alert, as well as the surround view camera, were all very handy to have. Um, so I guess in short, um, it, it may not necessarily be the new class leader as perhaps Nissan might want it to be, but I think that the new Qashqai is a really good, solid um, alternative to what's on the market right now. Um, it's a really great size. Um, you know, the back seat and the boot are some of the best in class. It obviously looks really cool. I think it's a really attractive, um, handsome vehicle. Uh, it's got a lot of choice in terms of variants so that you can, you know, have one to the price point that suits you. And obviously that new drivetrain um, is is a big improvement on the old one. So it's it's sort of like around that high seven, low eight mark, depending on which variant you get out of 10. And I think that um, it's definitely something that Nissan will be glad to have back in their range because the cash has really been a, a good volume seller for them. So, you know, last year, um, Nissan lost about 5,000 units worth of volume by not having enough cash guys on sale. So I imagine we might see a few of these on the roads very soon. Yeah, awesome. Well, that review is live now and you can go and check out uh, what uh, rating JWO gave it as well, carexpert.com.au. Episode 123 down for 2023. JWO, what cars have we got coming up uh, for the garage next week? <laughs> so um, this coming week, um, there's quite a few different cars coming through. So in Melbourne, we've got a Mitsubishi Pajero Sport GSR, which is a variant, a new variant that we've been really hanging out to get our hands on. Um, the Jeep Compass Trailhawk, Peugeot 308 GT Hatchback, um, the Range Rover Evoque uh, Plug-in Hybrid, which is um, one that we're, we haven't had before. Uh, Kia Cerato GT Hatchback as well. In Sydney, we've got Matt Campbell in the Toyota Corolla Hatch ZR Hybrid and the Volkswagen Golf GTI. And in Brisbane, the, the team there is uh, in the Nissan X-Trail TIL as well as the Volvo S60 B5. Excellent. And we've already got events in the calendar for this year, Moco. We do indeed. So coming up, we have the launch of the new BMW 7 Series limousine, which also comes with an electric derivative for the first time. Surprise, surprise that Al Bors is going to be covering that for us. Who would have thought? Um, We also have the Audi e-tron GT, the much-delayed electric high-performance four-door fastback up in Sydney. 
Wongi, you're going to cover uh, not only the Australian Open tennis, because you are an absolute tennis nuffy, as we all know, but uh, the Kia EV6 GT, the ultra high performance um, new electric Kia that in some ways takes over from the Stinger as that brand's halo flagship model. And then moving into the following week, we have a really interesting new energy vehicle day is what it's called from GWM. Um, it's going to talk about some of its plans this year, including the tank hybrid and potentially some other electrified vehicles like the Aura Goodcat electric car from its sub-brand. So Scott's going to find out all the gossip on that front. So it's good to see some uh, really interesting events starting to trickle into our calendar already. Indeed. And if you have any suggestions for us, uh, any ways of improvement or just some good words, uh, podcast at carexpert.com.au. James Wong and Mike Costello, thank you. Thanks, team.